You're listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates, where we desire for real people to meet the real Jesus and experience real change. We pray that God might use the next few minutes to draw you closer to Him. I want to start this morning with a short video clip. Uh, I, don't, I don't use a lot of videos because it's hard to set up. And Anyway, I, I got a clip from Denzel Washington. Yeah, and all God's people said, yeah, all right, good. Uh, but he's, he's, uh, he's speaking with a BBC interviewer, and he's talking about technology use. And he just kind of goes on this rant, and the, you can tell the interviewer's trying to corral him, but he will not be corralled. Uh, and he just asked this myriad of questions. And I want to I show you this video, and then I want to spend some time, the next 40 minutes, working out what God has to say about uh, what the questions Denzel Washington asks. So what is the long-term effect of too much information? The polarization of the electorate? A meaner spiritness? And false information as well, because the, the, all the whole of, fake all news it. Pick thing. One. Pick one. It's not just one. That's the flavor of the day. Every day is something else. People have to understand, are you using your device or is your device using you? Can you put it down? Can you turn it off? You're talking about literally the places people all get their information, information from. I don't care what, what information. Pick one. Phone, television, you know. It used to be news, now it's opinions. Oh, glasses, we have three experts on the right, three on the left, let's discuss. Ooh, light bulbs, we have three experts on the right. That's not news, that's opinions. Well, over and over and over, cycle, 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 cycle. What is the long-term effect of too much information? If you're sitting there and you're thinking it's the gospel, what I'm saying to people is, to all of us, I'm not knocking the phone. What I'm saying is we have to understand, we have to at least ask ourselves, Around the world, you, here in England, wherever you are, what is it doing to us? What is it doing to us? There's a history of technological advance in communication. For example, the printing press, uh, where Bibles were finally able to be had and printed for people. Or the TV or the radio. These massive movements in communication were not only beneficial for society, but they shaped how we think, shaped how we take in information, shaped who we are. Is it possible this morning that the digital age that we live in is shaping us? And everyone said, yes. Good, we're on the same page. Is it possible that as Christians, we are unknowingly being formed and shaped by the age in which we live. Yes. The question for us is not whether or not it's true. The question for every Christian is to what extent am I being shaped away from the image of God? To what extent in the age that I live in, in particular the digital age, is my use of technology shaping me and conforming me in ways that move me further from Jesus? Is it possible that in the digital age, we are being subversively, in some ways, conformed to the image of the world? I would submit that the answer to that is yes. So what I want to do this morning is I want to read two verses from Romans 12. 12, 1 and 12, 2. I want to pull out a calling, a warning, and a goal. A calling, a warning, and a goal. At the end of it, I will give you three questions for application. 
This, uh, this sermon is, is heavy on framework and philosophy, light on application, because, listen, uh, if you don't know, you need to put your phone down more. You need to put your phone down more. If you don't know, you need to binge watch less, you need to binge watch. Like, but that's not the point. And I think there's, you could Google that. I'll give you some questions. But like, I want us to, I want to try to unfurl and unwrap the ways in which we are being formed that conflict with our faith. And there's only, I'm only pulling out three, but there's a myriad of them. So uh, Romans 12, one and two. Like the way that we worship forms us. For example, I'm gonna say, let's read Romans 12, one and two. Reading your copies of God's word or on the screens. 90% of you are gonna do what? Look at the screens. Which means 90% of you aren't gonna look at your copy of God's word. We're forming something in that exchange which I think we should now change. But there, there, there we go. Like, how we do things changes us. I appeal, therefore, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. May the Lord bless the reading of the word this morning. Like I said, I'm gonna do the, the calling, I wanna do the warning, and I wanna do the goal first. The calling, verse one. Verse one, Paul says again, I appeal therefore to you brothers, or brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present yourselves as, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So briefly, if we're trying to understand what Paul's saying, we're caught up in, in the latter half of the book of Romans. He has spent 11 chapters detailing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, he spent 11 chapters trying to prove humanity's fallen state, their sinful state, 11 chapter is trying to prove how, how humanity at its core hated God and was separated from God and how God sent Jesus to die on the cross, rise from the dead, that they may be redeemed. And so that's the whole 11 chapters, the, the goodness of God, the mercy of God. Then chapters 12 through 16 are all, here's how you should live. I mean, what Paul's saying is, look, doctrine has to move into life, that what you believe will move into life. And so here's how that works in chapter 12. It says, therefore, by the mercies of God, I appeal to you. Uh, there's, there's no command here. Paul, you should, you should consider him a lawyer at this point. He's standing in front of you, a jury of his peers, and say, I want to convince you that you should live differently. And here's why. He says, by the mercies of God. He says, but everything I've explained about the gospel, that you were in a fallen state, that you were created by God, that you sinned, that you hated him, that you ran from him. And that when Romans 5 says, while we were yet sinners, it was what Paul saying, by the mercies of God, one of the greatest mercies of God is that he did not wait for us to become better in order for us to receive mercy. Do you know why that's so great? Because none of us would ever receive mercy. It was while we rejected him, while we ran from him, while, while we hated him, while we were uh, obsessed in our own sinful lives, God in that moment looked at us, looked at our hatred for him, looked at our rebellion and sent his son as proof of his love for us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ, God, God in Christ bestowed mercy upon us. And it's interesting too, is I think there's this rather common understanding in almost every other religion about the nature of obedience. Every other religion offers this. They say, listen, there's something wrong with you. And if you figure that out, if you can get rid of that, you can get some of this mercy. 
And if you keep that out of your life, you can keep getting mercy. That it is a hamster wheel of, of futility. That every other religion says, listen, you need to do in order to be loved. You need to keep doing in order to receive mercy. You need to keep, keep doing in order to get grace. Christianity says, listen, in the back, uh, way long ago in history, Jesus did all the work so that we could receive mercy in our broken state then and now forever. In other words, what I'm saying is like, one of the greatest mercies of God is that when it's bestowed upon you, it doesn't wax and wane. It doesn't go up and down on your obedience. That your mercy from God is settled in Jesus Christ. And we, we tend to think, man, if, if I don't obey, God's not gonna love me enough or, or his, his love's gonna lower for me. But in Christ, God's love and mercy are abundant, abounding for us forever. That in Christianity, Jesus transformed religion from something you do to obtain mercy to something you do because mercy has been obtained for you. Okay, so it would tease us out even more by the mercies of God because Paul's whole argument here rests on whether or not we understand how deeply we needed his mercy. The people who don't believe they needed God's mercy then won't live for him because they were all right, okay anyway. So if we were to like do a picture of the gospel, imagine yourselves at the bottom of a lake, dead. Everyone there? Okay, great. The gospel is Jesus swims down, breathes life into you, and brings you to the surface. We like to think, you know, I was, I was kind of breathing down there. I wasn't totally dead, right? Or I just needed a lifeline. I was struggling. I'm not a great swimmer, and I'd been out there for a while. I don't know how to tread water. But, uh, but Jesus definitely helped me. Well, Paul's saying, no, you were dead. And Jesus revived you, brought you new life. You had no hope without him. By the mercies of God, you were saved. And he says, in, in response to that, you offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. That word, that word present is a, is, a, uh, is a liturgical word or a Hebrew, a word that refers back to the Old Testament with the, with the, with the sacrificial laws. And so you give yourself as all of you, your, your, all, of your, all of your life, your, your members, your thoughts, all of it, you give it all to him as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And this is your spiritual act of worship. What Paul is saying is, listen, in response to what God has done, there's only one reasonable answer to give your life fully to him. That we don't live in duality. That we're not something different on Sunday morning than we are at work. That our lives are consistently a sacrifice for him. So a couple of things worth noting here in verse one is that this, uh, Paul envisions this being a willing offering. We think about, uh, the, if you even just imagine a bull being led to the slaughter or a goat in a line of goats, waiting, like at some point, the third or fourth goat's gonna go, I don't like the sound of that. <laughs> and start pulling against the rope, right? What Paul envisions here is a willing Christian to say, listen, you have given your whole life to me. The only and best option I have is to give my life to you. And so I willingly walk, not like a toddler who won't eat broccoli, not like a, a, a Labrador who won't go to the vet, but a willingness to go to the hard places. Uh, one commentator I read makes this, makes this observation, and I think it hit me a different way. This is Paul's argument here is that the Christian who sacrifices his life in response to the gospel does the most rational thing a Christian can do. What he's saying is, if we realize 
who we were, if we realize the true state of the world, if we realize how much God loves us and how much, how much we've lived apart from him, then the only rational not even emotional, not spiritual. The only rational thing to do, the only smart thing to do, then is to give him the rest of our lives. Oh, that's a great way to think about it, which is why in verse two, he talks about the renewing of your mind. The second thing we need to think about here is that worship is designed to change and to form us. He says, give your bodies a living sacrifice. You get up on that altar, you're climbing up and you lay down. And what Paul is saying is, instead of someone else lighting the match, you grab the match and you light it and you begin to allow the holiness of God to burn and to form you. That your spiritual act of worship is meant to change and transform you. Worship itself is not an exchange between words and heart. It is a way that we are formed to our soul. How we worship matters. And so what is the calling? The calling is briefly, because God saved you, give your whole lives willingly to God. That's the calling here. That in view of what God has done, the only rational response a Christian has is to give their whole life to the Lord in response. It is the picture of Jesus in the garden before he's crucified saying, not my will but yours be done. God, not my will, but yours be done in my marriage. Not my will, but yours be done in my future, in my relationships, in my dreams, in my hopes. Not my will, but yours be done. That's the calling. Number two, the warning. And the warning follows quickly after the calling. And the calling is exhortation. It is a pleading with Paul to do the most rational thing he can think of is to give your mind and your heart to the Lord. Then he says this, do not be conformed to this world. And I want to tease out a couple things. Because he says, do not be conformed by this world. And then, and then uh, the, 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 the other the kind of counterpoint is, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Both conformed and transformed have the, the, the verb be in front of it. And I say that only to say this. Paul writes those verbs in the passive. He doesn't write them in the active voice. Which just means this. What Paul is saying is, do not allow yourself to be conformed to this world. Don't put yourself in a position to take in the world, the world's framework, the world's patterns. Don't, don't put yourself in a position to be conformed. That certainly, he just, basically Paul doesn't say, because he, he could, he could say, don't do all the bad things, right? And he does say that. But what he's saying is here, don't live in a way that would allow yourself to be formed in the image of of this age. That's why it's passive. Don't allow it. For our purposes today, I want to talk about the digital age, not allowing ourselves to be conformed. Because my thesis goes something like this. Our phones are not just a tool. They shape us. Uh, the news, the news that we take in shapes us. The method in which we take it information shapes us. Like I don't, I don't, I don't have to roll out statistics. But anyone with a phone, you know your attention span is less. You know uh, you are more distracted and more distractible. You know uh, that you are usually less present. They do these studies where even if you take your phone and you turn it in uh, an airplane mode or you put it on in a meeting, your mind can't focus on the meeting because it's worried about what that phone is going to do. We are being shaped. And I want to be clear. I love my phone. I don't want you to get rid of your phone. I don't want your phone. But I want to start asking questions about how this world in the digital age shapes us, shapes our faith. Uh, consider this. Many of us wake up in the morning, we go to the bedside, and what do we do? Grab our Bible, a phone, phone. 
We scroll, whatever. We take a shower. We have breakfast. We drive to work. And if we drive to work, we're listening to a podcast. We're listening to, uh, listening to music, something like that. We get to work. We plug in our computers. And our computers are connected to the what? Internet. And so whatever we're doing is connected there. And then at break time, what do you do? You grab your phones. And uh, you scroll, scroll, scroll until 30 minutes are gone. And you realize you're 15 minutes over your break. And you go to lunch. And it just goes on. And then at the end of your day, you come home and you, you listen to your podcast, your music, and then uh, you have dinner and Alexa's shouting instructions on how to make white chicken chili or whatever. And, uh, and then you, you, you have dinner and you put the kids to bed. And then what do you do? You plug in to Hulu or Netflix. My point is this, not that not all of it's bad, but that we cannot escape this. And if we can't escape it, then we are surely formed by it. Surely formed by it. It's impossible to be present in this digital age and not be shaped in some form or manner. And so before we get into some specifics, I wanna, I wanna kind of tease out a few things. Paul is not calling for us to retreat from the world. He's saying, don't allow yourself, as you live in it, as you live in this age, don't allow yourself to be conformed. Don't be passive about the water that you're swimming in in culture. It doesn't mean, I'm not saying you can never use tech. I'm not saying you need to get rid of your phone, though you may. I'm just saying we need to think more, more uh, intentionally about the age that we live in. And some of us in the room are super excited that I'm preaching about tech use and the way it affects us. Because here's what happens. You go, that person really needs this over there. We've all got somebody in our lives. I mean, 2020 and COVID showed us we got people in our lives. It's for you too. If you have a phone in your pocket, if you've got a computer, if you've got a TV, if you've got an internet connection, all of this has formed you to differing degrees. Almost none of us can escape it. The sermon's not about not using tech. It's about learning to think critically about how uh, technology shapes you. Paul did not say, do not conform any longer to this world and become Amish then and build a barn. He didn't say that. He didn't say don't drive a Tesla or whatever. It's not about becoming more Amish or any of that. The goal is to become aware of how we live our lives and then ruthlessly eliminating anything that doesn't draw us closer to Christ. Ruthlessly. This is the whole, this whole Christian life right there. Aware of what we take in, aware of how we live, so we can ruthlessly eliminate anything in our lives that doesn't draw us closer to Christ. Three age, three areas in which the digital age seeks to shape us. Three, three ages, three years. Self, community, emotion. It shapes our view of self, it shapes our view of community, and it shapes how we feel. And so over the next few minutes, my goal is to illustrate uh, that, that what you're experiencing in social media or in the news is not uh, happenstance. That we are being intentionally leveraged into certain places for monetary gain. And that leveraging that happens to us complicates our spiritual life if we let it. So uh, the first area, uh, the area of self, the area of self, what is, how does social media, and when I say social media, what I'm including is any, any uh, social media apps, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, Snapchat, whatever, but it also includes the news media and the apps that they use on your phone as well. So really, it's how we interact socially with the news that we take in and how we take that news in. We, we live in expressive individualism uh, waters. That is to say, 
the prevailing, the prevailing notion, the prevailing way we understand ourselves in culture today is this, that the greatest good in one's life is to live out whatever desires, whatever hopes, and whatever dreams lay within their heart. This is certainly more uh, in the younger generation, though the older generation has always struggled with this. You know why? Because like at the core, we just love ourselves some us. We just love ourselves. We just do. But now we found a way to leverage that in culture. And so expressive individualism is, is me versus anyone else. If you don't approve of me, if you don't approve of my desires or my dreams or my hopes or my expressions or whatever, then you're oppressing me and you gotta be out of here. It's also me versus God. If God doesn't approve of my lifestyle, of who I love, of how I live, he must, not, he must not be true, loving, or kind. If God doesn't approve of my deepest desires, then probably he didn't say that in scripture. If God doesn't approve of all of my hopes and dreams and the way I wanna live life, then he probably doesn't exist. Expressive individualism sounds like this. You do you, you be you, follow your heart, find yourself. If it makes you happy, do it. At the end, or at the core of expressive individualism, you were taught to look inward for your final fulfillment. You were taught to look inward for the satisfaction of your soul, for purpose, for meaning. And so it puts people on a, on a, cynic, or a cyclical descent into their soul. If I could just be this, if I could just do that, if I could just have this, I would be happy and fulfilled and there'd be no problem. Technology like social media and the news invites us to be further defined by ourselves, our story, and envy with others. 91% of people in the U.S. have some social media interaction daily. Over the last 20 years, rates of anxiety and depression have increased 70%. That is instances of people reporting, I have worse mental health than I did before. 70%. Now, these are in relatively new areas of study, and causation and correlation are not the same thing. But the more studies come out, the more people are more convinced that the advent of social media and the disconnection from each other is creating a mental health tsunami. We are less satisfied, more anxious, more prone to deep depression. Why? Because we look at ourselves for meaning, we look at others and their, their successes, and we feel bad. We realize this was a great, I mean, look, all of us do it. We, we put these online personas up and we curate them, you know? And if you're a Christian, you get your Stanley mug, fill it with coffee, you put your Bible on some like rustic table at a Starbucks, you take a picture and hashtag, like, my, my point is this, all of these things are curated. And so even, even what we realize, we're putting out something that is false. And we're taking in other people's false realities and comparing ourselves to them, it's no surprise that we have more reports of anxiety and depression. Did you know that if you just reduce your social media uh, usage just, just to 30 minutes a day, do you know the, the rates of anxiety and depression plummet? Plummet! If you just say, yeah, I'm going to catch up for 30 minutes, that's it. Good luck with infinite scrolling is what I'm saying. <laughs> 30 minutes. There is a deep connection between how we view ourselves, the satisfaction we have, and how disconnected to satisfaction and purpose social media makes us. These apps are designed to keep you. I I was thinking about this, and I've been thinking about my own sanctification recently, and like, uh, I've been, I've noticed myself at home, I found myself to be uh, more, more quick to anger, and, and that's unusual for me. Like, I, I have 
like my family used to yell a lot. Uh, so I come from a yelling family, come by it honestly, I guess. That's what I'm saying. But like, I feel like I've, I've, I've sensed more of that in my soul recently. And I've tried to be curious, like where is this, like where is part of this? And uh, I've been trying to like chart, like when is this happening? Where it normally wouldn't happen. You know a great deal what I'm finding is? A great deal of my frustration and grumpiness and uh, you're likely to get like a, a sharp response from me is if you interrupt my dopamine rush as I'm scrolling. Okay, when I say dopamine rush, what I mean is the apps are designed to biologically give you a hit of dopamine so you feel good. Ever been to a casino? It's that but in your hand. And so anything that interrupts this 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 scrolling, this, I've got to check this ad, I've got to check this thing, I've got to check this reel, it's not just spiritual, but there are biological implications for why we hate being disconnected from our phone. Now, I'm not, I'm not going to go so far as to say we're all addicts, but, like, my dopamine got interrupted and I got angry, like an addict would if they're, <laughs> they're like, let's just be honest, like, let's, let's just call it what it is. If you doubt me, <clears throat> try standing in line at Albertsons without a phone. Then try making eye contact with somebody. You'll be the strange, they'll call the police. <laughs> don't do that anymore. Try imagining walking and taking a hike without your phone. One of your first thoughts is gonna be, well, how am I gonna take a picture? And your second thought is gonna be, I, who needs to see this picture? And how will I know where I am? In Montana, that's a reasonable question because it's big and wide. Imagine celebrating a birthday without a phone. I did this with my uh, I was taking a picture of Nico's birthday last year, and I was taking pictures. And Vanessa goes, like, why are you taking so many pictures? Like, I, I want to I wanna share them. And she goes, with who? <laughs> All right, fine. <laughs> we got to move on. But, I, like, but the point is, social media begins to shape our view of self and reality, creating a deeper dependence on others and their validation, which then skews into deep anxiety and depression. Let me just say this too. Moms and dads, moms and dads, uncles, people with kids in their lives who are going to be teenagers or are teenagers, do not let your child have unfettered access to their phone. Ten years ago, we could have wondered about the impact of it. We have hard data. We have hard data now. We can't stick our head in the sand. Your, your kid doesn't need all those apps. They need to be able to call you an order for you when you need Uber or whatever. <laughs> Did you know that our kids are on average using three and a half hours of social media? After three hours, there are higher rates of depression and anxiety. Did you know if you have a teenage girl, social media, the, it is, the algorithms are wired to hurt our daughters more. They're wired that way. They're wired to tell our daughters they're not beautiful enough, they have no meaning, that they need to be defined by men or be defined by others. They are wired to hurt our daughters. Parents, people who love teenagers, do not let your kids have a phone unrestricted. Have the hard, uncomfortable conversation now so you don't have one that's going to be more uncomfortable later. Pay the price now. Your kids won't thank you until they have their own. That's worth the investment of 20 years of waiting, I'm telling you right now. The digital age is inviting us and facilitating an age where we are more likely to experience anxiety, depression, and deep, content, deep discontentment with who we are. 
The second area is community, is community, that it shapes our community. It shapes our view of who we should be ultimately allied or, uh, or have allegiance with. And so I want to I wanna give a concept. I spent too much time in the first service on this, on this particular one. And so I want to I wanna say this, 52,000 data points, okay? Meta, who owns Facebook and Instagram and a few other things, they collect, on average, 52,000 data points on you. And you say, well, how did they get that much data? When you signed up and they said you need to agree to the terms and conditions and you did what all of us do, scroll down and press accept, I read, you gave them permission to use your phone, to your ads, and all of that. And I say all of that just to say this. The way you are leveraged is they take those data points and they put you with a group of people and they say all of these people have the same data points and they go to an advertiser and say, hey, these people love Johnny Cash, they love Ford F-150s, and they love air fryers. Would you like to advertise to them? And before you know it, Johnny Cash is singing in an F-150 about air fryers. And you're buying, like this is how that works. If you're not paying for a service, you're the product they're selling. Okay, so if you're not paying for it, they're selling. And I say all of that just to say this. There is a great deal of money to be made in taking faithful Christians and lumping them together and, and creating this pretense of community online, uh, wherever it is, so they can sell you. And I, I want to say this a little, a little bit more. Do you know what happens tomorrow in Iowa? There's a... There's a a primary or a caucus in Iowa. Do you know what that means? For the next like 10 months, it's gonna be absurd to be a Christian in America. Because what's gonna happen is they're gonna take those 52,000 data points and they're gonna put you in a group of people who you don't, who you agree with on everything, whose worldview is the same. Why? Because they want you to stay there and so anything you would disagree with gets filtered out. So the algorithm puts you in this group and then begins to send news to you and altered headlines to you so that you stay on. The whole goal of social media and news is, is biased, but they're biased only towards one thing, money. I mean, they're biased in other ways too, but chiefly, if they can't make money off you, they don't care. And so in a political season, Christians are going to be manipulated into groups and into believing the most noble thing you can do with your life this year is to spend your year sacrificing for the politician of your choice. And I just want to say this. I love that we have freedom of choice. I love that we live in a place where our voice is heard. I've lived in China, and the opposite is the worst. And yet, there is no money to be made in Christian faithfulness online, but there are billions of dollars in leveraging people of faith towards politicians and politics. And so they'll write half-truths or partial truths. They will begin to build your ire and they will begin to form your circle with an algorithm so that everyone you experience online believes the same things and looks like you and does the same things. And what will implicitly happen is you will begin to think that the way that you think about life, the way that you think about faith, the way that you think about politics, the way you think about all of it is inherently true because no one ever disagrees with you. And so your whole online experience is curated to make sure you stay longer because you agree with it. And so then it ends up affecting our ability to see truth, to see the kingdom of God, and to give our lives in ways that matter. Like if you're, if you want to test this theory, type the word Trump 
in the search bar of your preferred news engine or social media preference. Or Biden. I guarantee you the results are going to scream at you. I mean, like literally scream. There are going to be videos of people, this is how this should happen, this is how this should happen. No, 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 he's this and he's this. And I can't believe that. Like we live in a world and social media stirs outrage and stirs familiarity so that we begin to believe the most important thing about us this year is how we will vote or our national citizenship or our favorite politician. If we are not careful, the thing that we are going to be concerned most about this year is not the kingdom of God, but whatever the kingdom of man has for the United States. And I want to be clear again, you should vote, you should be civically involved, what a responsibility it is, but it is not the ultimate thing in your life like you'll be led to believe for less for the next nine months. It can't be. Like at some point this year, there's gonna be a point where some of us, or some of us are angrier at our neighbor, our coworker, or our family member for how they're gonna vote differently then we are angry about the fact they may end up in a Christless eternity. That's not all of us. I'm just, I'm just saying there's a point at which the fever pitch is gonna be crazy. It was four years ago. It will be worse this year. And social media has, has no desire to cultivate good Christian community. They have every desire to take Christians out of community, create false community, and then put that above true Christian community. Self, community, and emotion. Self, community, and emotion. It shapes who we are and how we interact with one another. Uh, I, wanna, I, I came across this phrase, online disinhibition effect. Online disinhibition effect. It's the effect we all feel when we're talking to someone, texting someone. We're more likely to say something we wouldn't. We're more likely to be more courageous. It's keyboard courage is what it is. And you sit behind a keyboard and you're more likely to be meaner more likely to dehumanize. You're more likely to, to do things and say things you wouldn't do in person. Because in person, we're forced to see, uh, we're governed by uh, eye contact, facial expression. We're governed by uh, body language. We're also governed by not wanting to get punched in the face. And so, like, all of these things, like, in online, in a disembodied environment, we begin to treat people differently. Empathy, compassion, love, uh, being slow to anger, being quick to, uh, quick to listen. Those things don't exist in the online rage room. And so look, if, if number two is two, that we are being narrowed into groups uh, of like-mindedness where, where all of our biases are confirmed just by being part of that group, what it means is we'll believe we are more right, more self-righteous about that. And so we'll get really opinionated and really convinced that air fryers are better than ovens. And God help you if you disagree with me. Or that disc golf is actually a sport. Or that my politics are without error. Or that my views are the righteous ones. Social media stirs outrage sourced in fear. And so we begin to hate and despise the people scripture tells us not to hate and despise. We begin to hate and despise others for their political leanings or who can't see our truth or who won't come to our side. We begin to hate and despise others who dare to disagree with us. And so what is stirred up uh, doesn't look like the fruit of the spirit, but looks like the fruit of the age. Outrage, rancor, slander, gossip. We are more likely to be less Christian online than we are in person. We're more likely to be less compassionate online than we are in person. We're more likely to slander, blaspheme, and gossip online than we are in person. And Paul says, it is to this, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. We swim in some complicated waters. We cannot disconnect from the internet. But that doesn't mean we have to be overrun. 
by how it runs the world. The goal, the calling, the warning, and the goal. The goal is to be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what the, what the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and, and uh, perfect. And so again, uh, be conformed. Don't be conformed, but be transformed. It's this passive thing. Allow your life, he's saying, to be uh, conformed and transformed by the Holy Spirit. What happens then is our mind is renewed. Uh, the Greek word for that is mind. What he's saying is the heart and the mind, how we view the world will actually change the more we give our life over to the Lord. The more that we study the God's word, the more that we obey, the more that we live in grain uh, with the grain of how God has created things, our mind transforms and we begin to see what God's will is. We, get, we begin to see how transformative it is for us. And so as our mind is transformed, you know what happens? God's will goes from elusive to clear. And then God's will goes from clear to difficult. Because obedience to God is often costly. It means we have to live in the grain of how God has created things. And how the world is. And yet there is hope. There is much hope. The transformation of the mind confronts self, it confronts our community, it confronts, uh, confronts how we view emotion. Our job is to cultivate a desire and willingness to get on the altar. If you want your mind renewed, if you want the main things to say the main thing, if you, want, if you want that redemption to be worked into your life, if you want by the mercies of God to be transformed, it means allowing yourself to be transformed, to making yourself pliable to the Spirit, to making yourself accountable to God's Word, to pursuing with all of your might the giving up of all of your life to Jesus. Much has been spent to redeem us. Much is owed. And so I just, what could be more rational, church? What could be more rational for the Christian and helpful for the Christian than to give their whole life back to the one who gave his life up for them? Nothing could be more rational. There's great hope for us because technology is a double-edged sword. That right now we're streaming this to wherever it's going. That more, the gospel is proliferating in ways because of technology it couldn't 50 years ago. 10 years ago. And so we take the good with the bad and we are not formed by the bad. We must find a way to willingly yield our technological use to the spirit so he has control over our phones and apps of, of streaming. Three questions. I want you to write down. Three questions. I didn't have these in the first service. You guys get the bonus, bonus act. Three questions. As we think about tech, how we use it, what we take in, in general, okay? Three questions. Number one. Does this method or app produce fruit of the Spirit in me regularly? Does this communication method, whether it's TV, computer, phone, or app I use, does this help produce fruit of the Spirit in me regularly? You could say, I once read an article over there that encouraged me, but the rest of the time it's been a tire fire. That's not what I'm talking about. Does this, does this use... In my life, am I spurred on towards holiness? Second question, does this help produce peace or does it help produce anxiety in me? Do you know it's okay 
this office. It's okay if you only look at the news like once every two weeks. You won't miss much. It's okay if you don't, like, we learned that in COVID. Does this, this product, this method, when I use it, does it produce more peace? Does it cultivate peace and trust in God? Or does it move me towards anxiety? Number three, does this help produce compassion for those around me? That is to say, when I use this, am I drawn towards those who are near to me but far from the Lord? Or do I see everyone as the enemy because they don't think like me, look like me, vote like me, whatever it is? Am I drawn towards, like Jesus was, in compassion towards the lost, seeing them for who they are and where they're at? Does this help produce fruit of the Spirit? Does it help produce peace or anxiety? Does this help produce compassion for those around me? We can leverage technology for the gospel, and we should. We must not be leveraged by technology to be conformed into the image of this age. Let's pray. God, we just are grateful for technology. I think about all of the ways uh, over the years that you have used human brilliance to move the gospel forward. The printing press, everyone could have a Bible. Radio can go all the way to unreached people groups. The internet can be, is a medium for the gospel, for preaching, for teaching. And God, we know that not every, not every medium, not every way, is good for us. And so Lord, would you do what needs to be done in us to kind of enlighten us to where we are being formed by this age? God, would you give us courage to run from that, to fight that? And God, if, if we can't do it, would you do what's necessary in our life to take from us whatever, whatever needs to be taken? in order for you to get our attention, to form us into your son. Lord, would you make us willing to be a sacrifice, to go willingly, to get on the altar, to light it, and let your holiness conform us into the image of your son. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to a sermon podcast from Church at the Gates. For more information about our church or to connect with us about what you've just heard, please visit churchinmissoula.com.